Good day, good evening, and good streaming. I am Jello Biafra, and this is Renegade Roundtable. Today, we have somebody who has thankfully forgiven me for not putting his band out on alternative tentacles long ago after we met and hung out when they were touring with the dog-faced Hermans. And then what happens, but he resurfaces as a uh, one of the cooler, more down-to-earth, approachable... Uh, I, I don't quite want to say TV stars, but I guess that's part of what you do from Saturday Night Live. And then especially when we reconnected, when you lured me into being typecast as a punk <laughs> rocker. <laughs> well, I don't get to play a villain. I wanted, always wanted to grow up to be a pen, the penguin. But anyway, on a show that a lot of people just love for good reason called Portlandia. And now, so here we are, Fred Armisen. Hi, Jello. It's great to Hi. see you. Great to hear you. And uh, yeah, I'm really glad that we we got to do that, that we got to really work together on, on Portlandia. It's, it's not just that we got to hang out, which we've gotten to hang out plenty, but I like that we did something together. Oh, yeah, yeah. My mm -hmm. honor. Plus, it was a lot of fun. Plus, of course, with Portlandia, I work and work at all the lines memorized, try to get this character who's a 77 punk rocker, wakes wakes up out of a coma and sees all the yuppies and everything in downtown Portland and freaks out. I'm all ready to go. And then the uh, AD, assistant director, somebody tells me right before you roll, oh, yeah. Oh yeah, Fred and Carrie don't know any of their lines. It's improvised. Yeah. <clears throat> we it threw me slightly, but then I realized, oh, this is going to be much more fun now. Yeah. And uh we just use that as a guideline. And I remember you were really funny. You were really great. And in between takes, you know, because the scene is that we're we're uh we're talking to like protesters, and the, the thing that you brought up. Uh, about punks back in the day was that like you used to try to scare people just sort of like jump out and scare people which people don't do anymore and i thought that was uh really entertaining to think of it that well, way. Uh, that's kind of what that uh old old dead kennedy song from the very first uh seven inch 45 california uber alice the b-side is called the man with the dogs and it's uh -huh. about this dude with two dogs who with this super penetrating stare and this weird grin who I would encounter in different places all over Boulder walking around I'd just be <laughs> looking at me looking at me like what is that? I, I really didn't dig that guy until I realized oh my god I know what he's trying to do what if I started man with the dogsing other people and oh. uh, had fun with that? And then it never stopped. I mean, <laughs> Chuck Dukowski and Black Flag, you know, they, they compared what they were trying to do to different people's towns to the creepy crawl stuff where uh -huh. the Manson family would break into some rich person's house and rearrange a few things, let people know they'd been broken into and then leave. <laughs> it was called the creepy crawl. That's I mean, a good one. Yeah, yeah. And so man, man with the dogs and people is another one. You know, I could do that sometimes if I was, you know, two buses were side by side. <laughs> one time I did that on a BART train in uh, Oakland where the train, other train and the other stop, I think it was Oakland West is right next to the BART train. I started doing that, this redneck dude, and he started flicking me off and shaking his fist. And, uh, you know, it's it's just one more way to remind people that, 
we won't go away. We're here. We've always been here. And you can try and say, don't say gay, critical race theory, eliminate and destroy all weird people. And, but nope, <laughs> that's kind of what the spirit of punk in a lot of ways is to me in part is, is the sh- value and shock value, the, you know, just kind of shaking sediments in people's brains. I mean, once in, uh, at an early Dead Kennedy show in Berkeley, one of the first ones there at a place called Aitos, not that many people there. We were trying to crack open another town besides the East Bay, and it was just a different world in Berkeley. There was kind of an older, kind of hippie dude who cut his hair this in the bag with his girlfriend. They had picnic tables. And I stood on the picnic table and picked up his pitcher of beer and slowly poured it all over him. It's like, no, no, you're not gonna, oh God, he's pouring beer on me. Later. At one of the bigger punk shows at a beautiful venue, maybe the best we ever had, even like a giant great American music hall. It was an old Jewish synagogue called Temple, Temple Beautiful, 1839 Geary. Anyway, Gang of Force, it was the most beautiful place they'd ever played in either. I was at somebody else's show and that guy came up to me and thanked me for changing his life. Wow. You, yeah, you... he said that one-on-one mind fuck and everything, it changed his life. Did you recognize him? Did you know who he was when he was walking up to you? Um, I can't remember if I did or not, but it didn't take much explaining. So I guess yeah. I kind of did. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. So, well, yeah. And I, one thing I, I was, I was used doing in the, in, in the first scene of shocking the yuppies going by or something. First scene we shot, I even faked an epileptic seizure on the sidewalk in front of him just to flip everybody out. I've known people who've done that in like inside of Walgreens or something like that just to uh, do some more man with the dogsing of people or whatever. And that was the most fun I had. And that did not make it into the final cut. But everybody who saw that episode of Portlandia, and I still get compliments on it to this day. Um, you know, that, that, so yeah, there was some even more fun stuff. At least I liked it, but that's part of the nature of film or TV is sometimes your favorite shots don't actually make the final cut. Yeah. It's just like a matter of time, you know, like where there's only so many minutes we can use, we have to get like the, the real meat of the whole thing. But I was, I thought it was really funny. I remember the way that you said the word yuppies was great. Oh, it was perfect. Yeah, and I wasn't even thinking about that, but um, but that's often sometimes people just come up to me, yuppies, yuppies. <laughs> really, oh, this must be somebody who saw the Portlandia show, and I didn't realize that if somebody like me or like Katie Lang, I believe, was in another episode that was shooting the same night or the night before, that yeah. um, once you're in one, you're never in another one. If you're a guest, because I was sort of hoping, oh, my God, Fred, cast me as something else. I'll have even <laughs> more fun. I guarantee you that. OK, maybe I would be quite as good a car dealer as Jeff Goldblum was in the <laughs> same episode I'm in. But you get you get the point. I mean, the more because yeah. I, you know, I, I have some acting experience myself, but oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen you. You're you're always great in everything I've, for for years Why did I get any more offers from you? Wah! Maybe because <laughs> I never moved to Hollywood and never got an agent. I don't know. I mean, there's cartoon voices, too. I was born to do cartoon voices. I am a cartoon, but I've never yeah. been able to really land that. But uh, anyway, before we go further into that, because there's something else I want to hit on that, what created you? 
Um, a combination of um, uh, Venezuela, Germany, and uh, Japan, and Korea, and uh, growing up around um, some South American music, uh, some European music, and then um, growing up in, in Long Island, New York. I would say, I think being in New York, uh, close to New York City, is what kind of uh, opened my musical experience up to getting to see great bands and going, doing, going to great record stores. Oh, yeah. Record stores can be very life-changing and always good medicine, especially if shopping for vinyl is the only true addiction you've ever had. But um, have you ever had a one-upmanship contest with Michael Franti, you know, from Spearhead and way back before that, Alternative Tentacles or Recording Artists of Beatniks, about who was more multiracial? Whoa, no. I, I But uh, it's a... Uh... That's a good, that seems like a fun competition. Yeah, in between Beatniks and Spearhead, he had a hip-hop group mm -hmm. called Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I know and there's a song on there where he lays it all out called Sometimes I Feel Like I'm a Sociogenetic Experiment. Yeah. And that was fairly soon because he was adopted by a white family and raised in a very white town known as Davis, California. Uh -huh. And uh, one, but he came to San Francisco on, I think, a basketball scholarship to University of San Francisco and ran off and started the Beatniks instead. But it wasn't long before he came up with that piece that he had traced back and found his biological parents. Wow. And found there's Irish, German, African American, and I believe Native American, and maybe more. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you sound like another sociogenetic experiment. Yeah. I mean, I admit I dug into I dug into you a little bit to try and come up with some better questions. I normally just wing it and stuff, but we can't talk about Portlandia or you know bands all day. And of all places, you know, New York was kind of your formative years. But you were born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Yeah, where Brett Farr went to college. <laughs> oh, that, that I didn't know. Uh, yeah, I went, uh, that's where I, um, my parents went to college. So they went to the University of Southern Mississippi. So uh, that's that's where I was born. And and were they exchange students or had they already relocated to the United States? Um, kind of, uh, kind of exchange students who stayed. Right. They, they were there to, you know, um, learn and to, to, you know, be part of the educational system there. And then my dad got a job in New York and they moved uh, up to New York right after that. And where were your father and your mother from? I mean, you have a very interesting background. Forget the, uh, the genetic part, but what yeah. different people did going back two or three generations. Yeah. My, my, kind of fascinating. Yeah. And that they, the idea that they go to another country to, to, you know, yeah. So if you can, lay out a little bit of detail on parents and grandparents, please, because I was fascinated by that. Not to mention, I can't address you as Frederick because that's not your, fir your first name on your birth certificate. My, my original first name was Ferry Dunn. Um, that was my dad's first name. So my mom is um, Venezuelan. She's, uh, you know, her mom and dad are from Venezuela. 
And um, my dad is half East German, so half German, but from East Germany. He lived in uh, uh, East Berlin. And then um, his, the other half is Japanese. Uh, his dad is Japanese, but we found out that he's not Japanese. He's originally Korean because uh -huh. um, there was so much racism against Koreans in Japan that he changed his name and nationality. Yeah. So, uh, so that's where they were from. And my dad luckily left East Germany before the wall went up and, uh, and made a life for himself in the United States. And then, uh, you had some interesting grandparents too, it appears. Yeah. My dad, my grandfather, Masami Kuni. That's uh, on your father's side? That's on my father's side was a, uh, choreographer and avant-garde, uh, dancer. This is in the 40s, 40s and 50s. Um, in Germany? In Germany. Well, in and Japan. Hitler was dictator. Yeah, but they were they were allies. So he went and entertained the troops in Germany as a as a Japanese national. Um, but also he was just this, you know, avant-garde dancer. And there are these incredible photos of him in, you know, for his like sort of publicity shots. And it was, it looked pretty avant-garde and he did characters and, uh, he was well known and, um, yeah, that was Masami Kuni. He was really into music. Well, the, and the other amazing part to me about that is that, you know, he was there in Nazi Germany entertaining Nazi German troops, but avant-garde and <laughs> Hitler is not exactly known for being tolerant of unusual art maybe because his own paintings were unusually bad and he got so upset he decided to be a dictator instead kind of like full pot i have no idea i have yeah it the whole it's it's a lot there's a lot i don't know somehow it worked out who knows what the logic was but yeah he got through it and that's where he met my um grandmother and that's you know he had um a baby with her uh-huh and did they all stay in Germany after the war or did they move? No, to no. Well, they split up. They were not, they, that was more of a, there was a fling and um, she did not stay in Germany. No, uh, after World War II, everyone left. It was really, really harsh and uh, harsh, meaning the everything was in really, really bad shape. And she went to Spain. Uh -huh. and she, I think she lived the rest of her life in Spain. <laughs> under another fascist dictator. Yeah, yeah. The one we let stand for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah. Well, him and the guy in Portugal too. Yeah. And I guess uh and I guess the guy later on, the guy in Chile. Um but uh yeah. Yeah. That was but, um, Nixon and Kissinger and ITT and other people's doing. They they didn't dig Allende nationalizing their copper mines. No, no, no. Um but yeah, so that's that's you know that it was all uh, it's a lot that they were you know East Germany. I mean, even that was like a whole you know complicated uh, place to be. Um, but like yeah, my dad ended up stories? in New York. Do they tell you very many stories? I've got a good story for you, and this is uh, my dad had a kid. Uh, my half brother in in Germany, and um, 
his name is Fabricio. And so I've always had this half brother, but he grew up in East Germany, East Berlin. Ah. And so, you know, as, as we know, it's like be, behind the Berlin wall and it was a communist government. And when the wall came down, I'm, I, I'm still, you know, I, I know Fabrizio's mother. You know, you could go to uh, the museum or the building where the Stasi was. The Stasi was their police right, force. Huh? Right. The and you can police. ask for, you can ask for um, uh, documentation of if they spied on you uh, as a person. You could find the records and she found photos, like hidden camera wow. photos from her life. And it was Heart, she said the heartbreaking thing for her was that like neighbors of hers were informants and oh, yeah and the photos she showed me because you can get them she got copies of these I'm photos sorry, spacing this is your mother or your grandmother this this would be my dad's ex-girlfriend oh okay okay um and the photos she showed me were so crazy some of them were of her apartment when she wasn't there ooh, ooh, ooh. So it would be, and one of them was an open refrigerator. It was a photo of a refrigerator open and the food that was in there. Um, so that's my story of uh, what that, you know. <laughs> some sure there's stuff like that in Fidel Castro's file by the phone yeah. book full. <laughs> Have you ever tried to get your FBI file? No. How does that work? Well, two different people, the Freedom of Information Act, I believe, are straight to the FBI. I have not tried personally, but two different people have tried to get FBI files on both Jello Biafra and Eric Boucher, my birth name, and the FBI has consistently denied they have one. I'm thinking, oh my God, how could they not have one? They're not that incompetent, are they? My God. <laughs> I mean, knowing about a few other things like that and how badly the R. Kelly... Uh, investigation was going that they got an especially notoriously bumbling recording studio owner to apparently wear a wire to try and bust him. And it's like, oh my God, if Ashcroft's Patriot Act is, if there's actually so incompetent that they're trying to do this because there are Kelly cases falling apart, maybe I shouldn't fear the W and Dick Cheney and Ashcrack and the Patriot Act after all. No, that's amazing. Wow, nothing on Jello Biafra. I, I refuse well, to believe it. Either that, he just lied. Yeah. Wow. Maybe Edward Snowden knows, but he was at the NSA. Who? I wonder who, under what um, government, like what president, it would have started with you. Like, I wonder who, I guess Reagan. I bet you Reagan would have been the most, like, who? Possibly Carter. Really? Because Ed Kennedy started in the summer of 78, and we were pretty full on yeah. about where we were at. There was already a little a little zine handbook g given out by a band that was kind of concurrent with us and before that was the most you know hard-edge, fiercest uh, political band called Negative Trend. Uh -huh. Will Shatter came out of that band into Flipper and Craig Gray went to the toiling midgets and all. But anyway, this little handbook, they had how to play punk. And one of the, the, the images in there that was the most, <laughs> the, 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 uh, uh, the, the one that stuck with me was, um, I think 
there was a before where it showed like reptile claws playing the neck of a guitar or something like that before and then after and it showed a gun to president carter's head ah yeah yeah the the, the san francisco was most fiercely political early punk scene in america and and one of the fiercest in the world and you know stu- very unsubtle bunch of people there in different yeah. ways i mean in their own way crime really was as well totally different part of the scene but there's the dills there was us there was negative trend on and on and on well by then you were in long island i assume uh when did you leave hattiesburg oh i must have been one I oh mean, okay. when i was a baby we just we I, it was pretty soon after that we had to move to New York for my dad's job. Oh, okay. So you don't have any tangible memories of being I a don't. Mississippian baby then. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah, because no you're not supposed to remember back that far. But my family no. moved when I was four and a half, five years old. So I have all these crystal clear memories of the first house and all kinds of things that went on there. And I could still draw a map and all kinds of things in there from where to where was it um colorado to california yeah Yeah. boulder colorado born raised and escaped (laughs) wow and then you went right to california uh eventually yeah um in in my case first i was a, a a misfit hippie kid but there were so many of those at boulder high that uh and we that we didn't even all know each other i mean we wore freaks as the badge of honor kind of like people did with queer later on and you knew who the freaks were and who the weren't and there were and there were so many professors kids and scientists kids from national center for atmospheric research among other places and then the ibm plant that um a lot of really weird and intelligent people i'm so grateful that i grew up that there were so many other really weird ass people in that in in that school even starting first grade and stuff that um i wasn't one of these people later when people hand wrote the snail mill the dear abby letters dear jello biafra (laughs) i'm the only person in my town who's like me and the jocks always give me shit at school and i think i want to (laughs) die and you know there's so many i couldn't answer them all it's basically whatever whatever's going on just remember this finish high school because the ones I knew who didn't never got their shit together uh-huh. to finish hard projects that take a lot of time, which is what the really good thing. A lot of you get out of high school, even if you hate everything else. Well, I got a few other things out of there too, but anyway, um, but, and then get out of your town, do yes. whatever you have to do to get out of your town. And the more you spread your wings, the more high school, which is supposed to be the best years of your lives, ho, 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 mm-hmm. will be that further in the rearview mirror. Believe you me. Now, when you were, when you considered yourselves freaks, and I like, I love that uh, title, who, like for me, right, there's all the people like John Waters, uh, you know, and all of every single punk band who I looked up to, but who was it for you then? Who were the, oh, who is all the, who kinds like your, your of beacon? things? Who is your that, beacon of like, who is your beacon of, uh, okay, I can get out of here and I can become something because well, of- there were so many from early on. I mean, one of my dearest friends to this day is a guy named John Greenway, who showed up new in the school in our class in first grade halfway through and Within days, he taught the whole class potty words and quickly established himself as both the smartest and the naughtiest kid in the whole school. 
And my mother hooked me up with him as a playmate because she knew his mother and stuff, I believe, even from birthing classes and stuff before we were born and everything. And but the more trouble we got into, the more they kept, don't go see, hang around with this kid anymore. Don't hang around with this kid anymore. But I kept going back and kept going back because we were, you know, we just had so much fun. We, we had, uh, you know, great senses of humor and stuff and kind of fed off of each other with that. And of course, then we met more people and stuff. But John and I were, were close enough to the point when, that when punk finally hit, and we were still there as degenerate hippies who loved the sex pistols and whatnot. Um, one day we were sitting in his room and probably playing some of those records if we weren't tripping out to Silver Apples and Tangerine Dream and Hawkwind as, as pothead hippies still and stuff. There was a notebook. We started making up names for bands, names for people in bands, and names for songs, and this, that, and the other. And then when I moved later, I took the notebook with me. And then... I, when I when a Dead Kennedys was about to launch, I was trying to get a new name. I don't want to be Eric anymore. I tried Occupant, you know, that way maybe somebody would finally write me a letter, you know. But uh, people were like, oh, hey, resident, how you doing? Because San Francisco's where the residents are from. So I got to try something else. Uh-huh. So I opened up the notebook. Oh, look at these names. Hmm. Smegma pig vomit. No, I don't know about that mm. one. Mucus melanoma. I think John made up both of those. Uh-huh. Then came, I think then was Bobby Bacteria, kind of boring. And then came Jello Biafra. As a and band. It was so, so, and it was it was catchy. It was really surreal the way the two images collide in the mind. Because of course, Biafra was the southeastern part of Nigeria where the Igbo people tried to break off and start an independent country called the Republic of Biafra. And then the Nigerian army, the Yoruba and others um, with help from Britain and even from America cut off their food supply and starved them to death until they surrendered. And that took years. So people like Kurt Vonnegut flew in Mercy Missions and took Life Magazine photographers with them back when our news media was way less censored than it is now. So both photos and footage on the evening news of the starving Biafran children lying all over the ground with rib cages, bloated bellies, and great big eyes, as far as the eye could see, was the worldwide symbol for uh, mass starvation and genocide. And so people knew what that was instantly. And so it was, and I, and I used the last name as the main name instead of just introducing myself as, as Jello because it kind of had the same kind of, kind of, kind of vibe as, as Tomato Do Plenty from the Screamers were my favorite of all those bands then, you know, Tomato, Biafra. Okay. We'll use that one mainly, but I'll mm-hmm. obviously use both. And I've been called any number of under unprintable names and un- unprintable in a family newspaper, as well as mm-hmm. my legal name, which I save for licenses, passports, de- medical records, and leave it at that basically. Yeah at this yeah. point well family who doesn't really want to call me jello it would be too weird if they did so yes. it, it says you 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 didn't change your name except for you went by fred from when you were a kid right or not yeah we both we all me and my dad were uh kept being called fred because fairy dunn was too hard to say so we right. just changed it we were just like why do we right. have this extra name that no one uses it's kind of like going from friedrich trump to fred trump yes yeah <laughs> 
Exactly. And yes, he fled the original Friedrich Drumpf fled Germany because of either an embezzlement charge or a lawsuit or something like that. <laughs> a crime family, even then. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I don't know whether that the that Friedrich Drumpf is the same one who is Fred Trump, Donald's father, or whether he was Donald's grandfather. But uh, you know, the the rotten uh-huh. the rotten apples don't fall far from the money tree. <laughs> no. Let's no. put it that way. So you, you, so did you move straight to Long Island as a one-year-old, or did you go other places? We, uh, we were in Queens, New York, then Manhattan, and then Long Island. And Long Island is where, that's where I learned to play drums and guitar, and that's where I started, you know, we, we, we'd go into the city to go get records. And me and my friend Kenny, uh, if he was here, boy, he would be amazed that I'm talking to you. We, I mean, one of the the first things, you know, fresh fruit for adding vegetables, just the cover alone (laughs) changed our, our everything. And we went to go see you. I remember we went to go see you at the Beacon Theater and it was amazing. Was it the, the, that, that day show for underage people? I I believe that was the one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was 1981 where the New York so-called punk underground was so closed and so establishment that even when we tried to tour there, you know, as an unknown band with a single out that nobody had in 1979, it was all over 21 and all a pecking or, oh yeah, you're going to open for Jimmy Destry's sister's band called Voodoo (laughs) Shoes at Max's and things like that. And, you know, it was kind of, and, and, and the, the, the bands that had taken off had already taken off and flown the coop at that yeah. point. There were gimmicky ones and stuff like that, but hardcore had not really hit. So then trying to crack the thing open and having a little more clout on the, you know, kind of a tidal wave of fresh fruit when it finally came out in the United States and stuff. Um, so suddenly people wanted to book us, but the only way we could get an all ages show in, in New York was to do it at a matinee at Bonds, so just a really impersonal tomb with a air airplane hanger with a way too high stage for our purposes. But that was what we got. What we got, and then their gimmick was, yeah, it's the kids show. Nobody admitted without kid. That was like corny, carny wow. New York rock biz stuff at that time. Well, even I believe it was New York rocker dismissed us as gimmicky for having an all ages show. Oh, man. But luckily, Irving Plaza, where we also played, was also all ages. And either one night or both nights, people who then were called the D.C. muscle heads, they, people heard about these rowdy kids from D.C. with names like Ian and uh-huh. Henry and uh-huh. others all showed up. And were, I think they might have been stage diving. They had clippers, so they were shaving people's heads on the side of the stage. Wow. And I was so happy they were there because it was such a different world there. And then we go play in D.C., 930 Club, and they're all there, and it's totally wild like it is on the West Coast. And they were so friendly and so positive. They didn't even drink. And, and here I was with a roommate who was not only an alcoholic, he was starting to sell speed and stuff. And if you... If you like the attic, you'll love their friends. And they were in my house. I had to put padlocks on my record collection and stuff. So it was such a refreshing group of people. And and for them to come up and start baptizing New York, that was just 
awesome. They yeah. also came up to Saturday Night Live the time Fear was booked. Oh yeah, John Belushi's request. He wanted Dead Kennedys, but they wouldn't book us because of because of our name. Oh, so that, is that the case? Instead. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that part of it. Yeah, Belushi came to one of those Irving Plaza shows and, you know, we met for a little bit backstage and I warned him the next album was going to have a song called Terminal Preppy on it about all the drunk University of Colorado frat boys, jocks and dorm people with stacks of beer cans on the wall to show how cool they were and how rebellious they were because they were drinking beer and stuff like that. I was still a hardcore hippie at that point. Of course, this was 1976 and there was a line in there, Belushi's my hero, I lampoon and I ape him, based on Bluto from Animal House. So I thought I owed it to him to tell him that ahead of time. And he totally got it and said he was glad I did that and stuff. Oh, and then man. invited me if I was back in New York, we're shooting this movie called Neighbors, you should come out and hang out on the set or something. But me, there were too many record stores to go to, so I never made it out to Neighbors. And then, of course, after that, Belushi had died. Oh, man. Yeah, exactly. You know, we got a song, and he got us a song in the movie, too. But, you know, who? I'm not sure I would have been fun company for him based on that Wired book and what they were doing in the car while listening to plastic surgery disasters later with terminal preppy on it. Come to think of it, you know, he it was, that was not that long before he finally had his fatal dose. I mean, at least you got to spend some, some time with him and how nice that he was a fan, you know? Yeah. I mean, then he had to go and the limo was downstairs. So away he went, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure I even thought to ask for a number or any way to call anybody to try and get to the set. I don't remember if I even did that, let alone <laughs> if I was dripping wet with no pen in my pocket, which is yeah. standard procedure for the stage. Uh-huh. <laughs> if you do what I do on a, on a stage and everything. Of course, it was rather warm in Irving Plaza when we played, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, 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 the Beacon Theater show was just just great. I think oh, you saw that one too. That's I saw the, the Beacon Theater is a show that I went to, and I I think MDC was playing. Yeah, too. they played that show too. False Prophets yeah. did as well. And False Prophets, that's right. Yeah, one or two more, I think, too. And there were complaints from Jack Rabbit of uh, Big Takeover and others afterwards about how our set was only thirty six minute long minutes long, and I was in disbelief because it was yeah usually an eleven song set or fourteen whatever we had you do that and that's the set. Yeah, And I didn't realize till later, oh my God, look at all the In God We Trust Incorporated songs on there, the really short, hardcore ones. It lopped 15 minutes plus off of our set, and I didn't even know it. So I'm I corrected not. that after that. Maybe 11 was standard, but because of that, I expanded the regular set to 14 after that because of... Uh, constructive complaints from Jack or somebody else that yeah, some people I'm... thought let down that we only played that long and I wouldn't blame them in a way. Oh, well, well, it seems now, like... now, now that the beacon theater has become this great big thing again, that I'll never be able to set foot on that stage again. No, <laughs> unless I'm doing improvisation with you again, you never know. Sure. But um, sure. I played that place. I'm looking at it now. I can't even believe I played that place. Yeah. And it was packed. It oh was yeah, so packed. oh yeah. It was that. It was that point in our existence and stuff. Okay, yeah. we got to take a very quick break here, and right. Renegade Roundtable will be right back.
Woo! All right, we're back. And as far as I'm concerned, we are still back in Long Island, where you presumably had maybe middle school, high school, whatever they called it then. Um, you're asking, you're asking me what was my beacon and we didn't even get into all the musical ones because, uh, the free box at Trade Tape and Records had started sending me all over the map. Plus, uh, once I heard MC5 and Stooges based on a rock critic at the Denver Post saying Black Sabbath is almost as bad as the MC5. <laughs> so I went out and got MC5 records and then, uh, and then the, the Iggy Raw power cover was reviewed in the rare occasion when I saw Rolling Stone, like, who is this guy and yeah. stuff. And even though I was not really into glam or the glitter look, nobody's going to make me cut off my hippie hair and put on expensive platform shoes. I ain't going to look like David Bowie at school. No, no, no. Uh -huh. But I couldn't stay away from the music because I had a hunch the New York Dolls or Iggy and the Stooges were going to be good. And of course, uh, they turned out to be, you know, pivotal in my whole life. I mean, the first, the two top albums for me ever still are Funhouse and Space Ritual by Hawkwind for all the, the other stuff. You know, No Holiday in Cambodia without Hawkwind when Klaus started noodling on that bass line. Wow. I was in a bad mood because they wouldn't play my Ramonesy punk version of Holiday in Cambodia. I ran in, oh my God, Hawkwind. And they never got into Hawkwind. Okay, slow down the song, start with this bass line, and then put in all the other parts we already learned, but way slower and trippier to go with this. And bam. Wow, and you right then no and idea. there, it's like, oh my God. You know, I was trying to get into negative trend with their Roz Rizabek, their really wild singer quit, and working with another guy too. Like, oh my God, this is what I'm trying for. Something that no one else has ever done. And so uh, stayed with that one instead. <laughs> What's the Hawkwind album you, that you just mentioned? Um, kind of the gateway drug for a very druggy band. Although you sure don't need any drugs to feel it. Because um, they're, they're the ones who are kind of the paramount band of that genre called space rock. Not prog rock because it's more powerful and hypnotic and and whatnot. I mean, I played it once years later for DH Polygro, long after Dead Kennedys broke up. And he was like, wow, this is like Ramones, only the songs are really long because of all the electronics and just the riffs in general from Dave Brock, who's still doing Hawkwind, and the main co-founder, Nick Turner, who was Saxon flute of all things. But the uh, look at the writing credits, the other main one who then did his own thing for years that he had to retitle Space Ritual to make peace with Dave Brock and occasionally have me sing with him and stuff. Nick died about three or four days ago. That's right. Yeah. Going into Hawkwind is, I mean, it, it, like, like getting to spend time with Nick is like getting this, like, you know, when you meet Ron Ashton and realize there wasn't just one stooge, this guy changed my life so much and wow. Scotty and as well, as well as Iggy. And then like, Nick, where would I, we wouldn't even be talking today if it weren't for Nick. And, and you Hawkwind, got to, you got to spend time with him and to tell him. How oh yeah. Him, uh, yeah. 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 I mean, he had a, he was the one, maybe the one person from that whole scene, America or England, from the psychedelic 60s, although Hawkwind really launched in 69 and the 70s, the most punk-friendly person, from, musician of note from that generation that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, who I, I who I mean Captain Sensible may go back that far too, but he wasn't in bands till later, et cetera. But uh, no, I mean Nick, Nick 
was out of Hawkwind by, I don't know, 75, 76 in a big volatile purge and stuff. But uh, he came back briefly in the early 80s and then left for good. But um, when he wasn't in Hawkwind, he came out 77 through maybe 81, 82. He had a punk band. I had no idea. Inner City Unit. Uh-huh. And uh, there's three albums, I think a seven inch or two. And like an idiot, when I did, had time in London after the first Ed Kennedy's tour in 1980, where I got to see Bauhaus the week, Flat Field came out. I saw Discharge. I saw The Sound. I saw the monochrome set, who were really good live, I might add, and and several others. But all these other bands, ones that were making the rounds of all these venues, and I never quite got there, were Inner City Unit and another then unknown band called U2. Wow. And this is, is this all uh, uh, England? Yeah. Yeah. This was just when that this is this is when London was still like absolute magic by 1981, a little less so by 1982, a little less so. Oh, there's always going to be important things going on there. But then it was it was it was just unbelievable. We were talking about moving there after the 1980 tour, but then we never did. So, um, you know, spouse might have had to quit jobs and things like that. Who knows? We just never did. And, um, but lots of cool things. I mean, Bauhaus then, <laughs> oh man, they started in pitch darkness mm-hmm. and Bella Lugosi's dead starts. And then right before it's time for Peter to sing one light coming straight up from the floor. They had their own light guy, Graham Bentley from the very beginning. One light comes up from the floor and Peter knew his marks. So all you saw was his face oh, man. in the dark, serenading you with Bella Lugosi's dead. <laughs> then they go into the flat field song itself and you see them a little more besides Peter, but not a lot. It was one of the deadliest live shows I've ever seen. Wow. There's overkill and there's underkill. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, uh, okay. Back to Long Island, um, yeah. record stores and whatnot. Did you already start doing drama or no. speechy things then? You didn't. Zero. Wow. Zero. Uh, Did you I, at least have impressions of your teachers to entertain yes. your friends? Yes. Lots of that. Lots of impressions. Uh, that's Who did you do besides your teachers? Um, there were some people on my block, some neighbors I used to do. Uh, <laughs> and then friends. Uh, I mean, just everybody. I, I really enjoyed doing that. And I would, uh, it really oh, yeah. made my friends. Uh, it really entertained my friends. It helped get me some dignity with the normaloids because they knew how good I imitated some of the teachers and nobody did it like I did it uh-huh. or as cruelly. That was part of the part of the secret for the whole thing. And Howard Cosell and Richard Nixon and Bella uh-huh. Lugosi and W.C. Fields and uh-huh. <laughs> many more. And then um, in my case, before we get back to you, um, Later, I got out of high school a semester early. I realized I had all my credits, so I just didn't go back and never went to graduation either. I just walked in, took my diploma, and left and stuff. But um, then I finally got a job delivering pizzas. Mm-hmm. My dad's little Renault R10. There was a little bit of a radio, but nothing I wanted to listen to then, uh, on there. But now that I knew a lot more what I really liked and stuff that was never on the radio. And then 
So I had to kill time sometimes. I drove around smoking weed and everything else. Sometimes got tipped with it too. And, um, but then I began to think, you know, my Walter Mitty Cinderella ambition ever since I saw rock and roll on that mid 60s TV show primetime called Hullabaloo. Mm-hmm. that ran for two or three years, even at the Beatles on there at one point, or, or the Stones. Then there was the Agogo thing to end the show, which was the band actually playing live and not lip syncing with a crowd right there. And two Go-Go dancers in cages with Leda Edmund Jr. being the really wild woman with the long hair, who I Googled a while back and uh, my first crush. Mm-hmm. And then um, turned out she made made a few 45 good ones too, soul garagey stuff. And then, um, but she later wound up being the highest paid stunt woman in Hollywood history. Wow. And she's still ripped in her 70s and some kind of uh, super intense trainer on the East Coast and stuff for people wow. in New Jersey. You know, she's she's still that person complete with all the hair. But, you know, you see that another one. I really like Paul Revere and the Raiders were there with those costumes and they had really good songs at that point, too. Did you like Paul Revere and the Raiders? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're the great unacknowledged main influence of 10 zillion garage rock bands on the Pebbles series and stuff. They don't sound like the pretty things. Most people didn't know who the pretty things were, but Paul Revere and the Raiders had not one, but two TV shows and all these hits on the radio, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil were writing some of the songs for them. Like Paul Revere and the Raiders, they had Man Wild songs too. And seeing them on there, I mean, the singer's name was Eric. That was cool because hardly anybody was named Eric except the school yeah. bully I had to deal with on the way home every day and stuff. And um, so, so the, the the animal, I loved the animals. Like that was what I wanted to do. You know, I'm supposed to be in bed. I'm jumping up and down on the bed, pretending I'm Mitch Ryder or something yeah. like that. Who even invited the crowd onto the stage and the in the a go go part of hullabaloo they saved him for the end and naive seven-year-old me thought that every oh why do they why does he have 30 people in the band what do they all do (laughs) i mean it took a while when i just first heard rock and roll on the radio and my dad stumbled into a rock one of those stations was trying to make me go to bed and then there was no stopping me and i went Mm -hmm. quick for the hard stuff the early stones paul revere Local garage bands still on AM radio back then, like Denver's own Moonrakers. And uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. that's what the monocles were on once or twice. And so I assumed, because the Beatles went through Denver at one point too, then I realized like three, three weeks, three months later, you mean the Beatles are still here? They're still playing on KIMN. No, no, Eric. They're not, it's not all the bands playing for you, they're playing records. <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> I was crestfallen for a while, but uh, still dug the tunes. What can I say? So you didn't go. So you didn't go into drama till later. Get interested in that. Yeah. But um, so somehow we go from high school in Long Island to popping up in Chicago as a 22 year old. Yes. Did you move there specifically to join Trenchmouth, the band? Yeah. Or yes, we we started. Fill me in from eighteen to twenty-two. That's a that's a lost Fred period at this point. Yes. So that's I went to School of Visual Arts in New York City. 
Oh, okay. And I met Damon, the singer for Trenchmouth, there. That's Ooh. where I met him. I see. And, and he had a uh, a damned jacket on, a machine gun etiquette jacket on. And I was like, ah, this th- I'm going to get along with this guy. And we're still really close friends. Well, tell um, him hello for me. I, I will definitely will. And uh, he uh, had to go to Chicago for art school. He's like, I'm changing schools. I've got to go to the Art Institute. Uh, I, you know, we can't be in a band together. And I was like, I'll just go to Chicago. I want to play music with you. So I did. I just moved with him. And we, that's where uh, my friend Wayne uh, moved as well. And then we, that's where Trenchmouth was put together. So that was in Chicago in 88. I'm assuming very Fugazi inspired all the, oh, did that, was that not yet part of? Oh, it was there. It was there. Um, yeah. uh, Damon yeah. is originally from DC. So he's friends with all those guys. Right. And, right. and um, I would say that like, yeah, we really, really were influenced by that sound and everything about Fugazi. We really loved Fugazi. We really did. And and all those discord bands, a uh, lungfish. We loved lungfish Nation of Ulysses, uh, Circus Lupus, we we loved it all. It's interesting because when I saw Trenchmouth, the times when you're playing with uh, Dog-Faced Hermans, it seemed cleaner than any of those bands. And almost in a way, it felt a little more, dare I say, formal. Yeah, I think that um, we kind of leaned into that, but but bands like Dog-Faced Hermans and The X were also just so good at making noise with their guitars. They, oh, yeah. and it looks easy, but there's a way that they did it that I, 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 I nobody really else could do. So you had to find another way to do it. Right. Yeah. What a sound. Um, but I, I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't even know how they created that kind of noise, but boy, they were great. I love dog face sermons. Yeah, they were they were much more subdued on that tour, and I'd seen them previously. Were they like something like fourth or something last minute bottom of the bill for another band, maybe a touch and go band, maybe a sub pop band? I don't know. And they just blew everybody away. Yeah, and a little yeah. more of a powerful side of their sound and changing all these instruments, and you never knew what they were going to do next. I thought this feels like London in 1980. They're that kind of a band where they're totally original. And just slaying people with something they've never seen before. Yeah. And I think they were mostly, I mean, they were British, but I think they lived in. Uh, they were Scottish. And then they had, then they moved, I believe, to Amsterdam, Amsterdam where most of them yeah. still live. Or or a suburb of Amsterdam, Vermer. Wormer. Right, right, right. Because yeah. two of them are connected with the X now. Yeah, yeah. One plays and one is a sound guy. Yeah. Stuff. God, they were great. I remember the singer, the singer went went full time with her art. I believe. Yes, she became a full time right. artist, Marion. But I remember Painter, um, sculptor or both. I can't remember. I, I can't remember either. But I remember you know getting to know the ex a little bit. Uh, I remember they when when we visited them in Amsterdam in Holland, they had just come back from an African tour. They they toured oh Africa, the ex, and wow. the way they did the tour is they didn't book it. They just drove to Africa. Drove to Africa through. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what country. Um, yeah, they would have to take a ferry boat somewhere. Somewhere, but they drove this big red kind of utility vehicle 
And they said that they would just show up and play. Their tour was that they would just show up and play in these different towns. Yeah, there's another metally hardcore band now called All You Can Eat who does that. I think they make connections ahead of time, but they've played in Southeast Asia. They played in Botswana and other African countries. And um, another thing, maybe completely separate from them, I was the one time I was brought in to curate part of a film festival, you know, tw- twice in one, one, one fall season in Paris and then in Lausanne in uh, Switzerland. And I think it was in Lausanne where another movie that was playing a documentary called Death Metal Angola. Uh-huh. And it was a guy in the capital who was doing this kind of recovery center for refugees from the civil wars and everything else. And it's still a pretty wild country. Once you get out of the cities or the mines and other things that the Chinese are slowly acquiring all kinds of traumatized teenagers and a little older just showing up. And this guy was using, teaching these kids death metal as therapy. And they were forming bands. And at one point they have a festival and another death metal band shows up from another town. And the only disappointment there was that there was no evidence of African music in it whatsoever. Right. You know, Cookie Monster vocals, same kind of grindcore stuff and everything. <laughs> but it was it was therapy. <laughs> and, and, and that film, I don't think it's ever come out over here, Death Metal Angola. But uh, that was pretty unforgettable. I got somehow... Somehow, did you get the, the, the drama, the acting bug, or the comedy bug while you were in Trenchmouth? How did you evolve from drummer to Saturday Night Live, and how did they find you? Although I guess you somehow got on Conan O'Brien first. Yeah, but I kind of... How did you go from one to the other? How on earth did that happen, both personally in your evolution or the beacons of the going in that direction? How did you connect with people to get booked, get known? Well, towards the end of Trenchmouth, we, you know, we were kind of winding down. Uh, my wife at the time uh, was kind of like, she was introducing me to a lot of British um, comedy. And there was this comedian. She was an artist too, or an actress, wasn't that, she? That was, uh, she's a, she was in the Mekons. Oh, okay. oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Of course. And yeah. um, she introduced me to these British comedians who would do this sort of hidden camera stuff. So I started, I went to South by Southwest and I started doing some of that kind of stuff, which was like interviewing bands. Uh, this is 1998, but as different characters. So I would do a German. Did you journalist. know about Nardwar and him doing that nope. in Vancouver? No, you didn't know about Nardwar didn't at all. Didn't know about Nardwar uh, yet. Um, <laughs> and, and then uh, a friend of mine put the video together of me interviewing bands, and that video sort of attracted people to like. I, I would show the video in Chicago at Lounge Axe. I, I in fact I went to Bottom of the Hill. I showed it there in San Francisco. And, and so you were uh, an advertised performer and that was your performance? No I, would, music? I would show a video and talk a little bit and people really turned out and they, they would write about it in the local paper or whatever. And then really quickly, I'd started getting offers to do stuff for shows to do, you know, stand up and I would do stand up as different characters. Wow. And th- it was much faster than how 
our, you know, how uh, trench mouth went. So it's just something that like, I just started poking around in and then all of a sudden I was doing comedy full time. Uh, and then Bob Odenkirk uh, got me on a show of his. Uh, you were making a living off of comedy that yeah, fast. Yeah, really pretty quickly. And then um, from working on Bob Odenkirk's show, I had enough tape to audition for Saturday Night Live. And then I did. And well, you had a good agent or a manager by then, too, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. And also, I loved doing it. Like, I just kept saying yes. I just kept performing wherever. And then um, auditioned for SNL, and there I was. And, and uh, that, you know, that was like the main part of my life. I loved it. I loved being on SNL, and I got very lucky that, that they got me on the show. Yeah, I, I I loved it. How much of SNL is improvised? Mm, very little, very right. very little, because right. it's it's because it's a live show and because of all the timing. If you start improvising too much, it, it'll throw everything off. So it's I a, see. Yeah, yeah, it's all very like. Also, like the way the writers write it, it's not it it, it there's a reason that those jokes are there. So you have to kind of honor. Right. Right. I get that. Yeah. How much time before performance did you have to learn the lines? You couldn't learn the lines because they kept changing them. So before the line, like before you go on every, every single show, they'll say, we changed it that, you know, they didn't like this part. So now it's, you know, you're saying this instead. So it's all on cue cards. Some people try to outsmart it by trying to. Um, oh, so you, you actually have the benefit of cue cards off camera? Always. always. And, and you lean on them and you really, everything yeah. gets changed so last minute that you, and I always didn't believe it when I would hear that. I was like, come on, how, how much can you possibly change? But I, I'm telling you, as soon as you get out there, it's like because of time, because you've got 30 seconds. So they're like, we gotta, we've gotta, you know, cut this down. Right, and and you and you and you, I assume that skill develops and your brain gets better at it as time goes on. Absolutely, and, and you start to learn what they want from you. Right, so right. It's, it's of it, you really do want to um, like make sure that the writers feel represented in the joke. That yeah. They yeah, because I I have not I've had to put a lot into learning lines. Yeah, it's hard. It's not. Although, even though my own music is so wordy, you know, I think more than more than more than Iggy or the simpler stuff like Hank Williams or Minor Threat. I mean, my writing style kind of came out much more like uh, Ron Mayle and Russell and the Sparks, and yeah. then I think Zappa was in there too for all the pointed little cruel <laughs> remarks and. And part of the illuminating things, um, you know, the, the directors I had in junior high and high school, they were method directors and they didn't do like Debbie meets the werewolf at prom type plays. They did real plays and put us up against uh, the, the nomad players, the adult theater in Boulder and everything else. You know, we were up against everybody and stuff. So, uh, 
high pressure in some ways, but very rewarding in others, especially if you wind up with the Boris Karloff role in Arsenic and Old Lace, which I did. Mm -hmm. And then in sophomore year, I got Ebenezer Scrooge, who I would love to play again at some point, even if it's like a dot-com cutthroat, make Peter Thiel and Ebenezer Scrooge, (laughs) and give it the smell of musk, who knows? But, uh, and another, another Karloff role, a dramatic one, and the other Jonah of arc play besides saint joan called uh, the lark i believe it was and i was the one guy on the inquisition who smelled a rat and kept begging her to do something and then the, the look i got from the woman cast as joan which is supposed to be the pinnacle of difficult drama roles at least for the method director we all had in high school and she finally found her joan and that wasn't Joan looking at me. That wasn't Jane. Well, that wasn't Jane Shepard anymore, who went on to make some films and still acts and writes plays and things. But uh, yeah. you know that that was somebody else. You could you know that was a very spiritual experience to you know leave my own body to some extent and become this other person, partly of my own creations. You can see the wet straw and the muggy stone dungeon she's in, and this, that, and the other right there that was that was that was a real heavy experience that one and and karloff originally played conchon on broadway oh man i love boris karloff i he's what a what a genius that guy was (laughs) oh yeah i love his voice (laughs) oh yes the karloff (laughs) voice I mean, there's a guy who made a whole bunch of very pornographic kind of electronic swing rock things, kind of like what fetus Jim Thurlwell was doing mm-hmm. for a while and, and much more explicit lyrically. And I and then and he he finally meets another female spanking fetishist where they're both on a spanking pay, mag on the opposite page. He goes by spit. You might even know him. Vinny spit from back when he was East Coast guy. Anyway, um. He uh, and then I, I crashed down there for one reason or another. And the most comfortable thing in the whole place was the table people were tied to for the porno movies. So I slept up there. Then he wakes me up the next day. Oh, yeah, you're recording today. You didn't tell me that. You're recording it. Get in there. This You're going to be Father Peter, the pedophile priest. Uh-huh. And so... I tried various different things and got into it. So I finally gave him Boris Karloff as Father Peter, and that's what got used in the end. Oh, good, good. All the Peter, the pedophile (laughs) priest. There was another time like that when I was doing the voiceovers and commentary for a home video version of Tools videos. And so at least for one video in particular, I did a little bit of me, but then I did Beavis and Butthead. And then I did W and Condoleezza Rice, uh-huh. <laughs> since they were they were a little more deeply linked than was commonly acknowledged. I do believe you never know, and and supposedly Laura Bush is a record collector, but uh, oh, that's who good. knows? You want every Jimmy Swaggart album? Maybe she has it. I have no idea. Yeah, I wonder what their, what their what her musical taste would be. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's hard to imagine, especially the Bushes. They're so cold blooded, liking music at all. I think I, mean, I know Wayne the Train Hancock played a birthday party for Governor Bush once, but he said, Oh, yeah, people just walked by that and they act like we didn't even exist. <laughs> Wait, who, who said that? Wayne Hancock. Wow. A traditionalist country guy who's yeah, very, yeah. very good at it. And apparently was the one who inspired. Uh, 
Hank three to start doing it's, you know those songs with that voice and then bring his rock stuff back in. Wayne taught him how to sing like his grandpa, oh, wow. basically. And Hank Jr. supposedly confronted him about it, not pleased at one point. But sorry, Jr., but none of you are named Hank on your birth certificate. No. <laughs> Hiram, Shelton, and I don't know who Hank, Hank Jr.'s real first name is. But yeah. uh, anyway, where were we? Ah, yes, Boris Karloff, the pedophile priest. Um, yeah. Yeah, you, you did a lot of impressions on Saturday Night Live. Did, did everybody do a lot of impressions or was that mainly you? No, there were some impressionists. Bill Hader did a bunch of impressions, Daryl Hammond. But it was one of those things where like some people did them and some people didn't. Right. But sometimes I they mean, would just, you know, make you do one, which was kind of fun. Yeah, I grew up on Laugh-In where <laughs> both Ruth Buzzy and then Lily Tomlin had so many insane impressions. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, kind of good. doing impressions of them was fun too, especially uh, Ernestine the Telephone Operator. Oh, yeah, yeah. She was great. She's calling Mr. Beetle. Gracious, good afternoon. And then she's <laughs> calling Mr. Millhouse, which, uh, of course, was Nixon. Richard Milhouse Nixon. And then when they realized they could get away with that, and this may have been after the Smothers Brothers got canned by the rival network for getting too political and stuff. Um, And I almost was afraid it was going to happen on the last couple Smothers Brothers we watched during dinner and stuff. And um, then... uh, so, so uh, (laughs) then the next one she's calling is Martha Mitchell. Uh-huh. who was a major media, you know, joke figure at the time because she kept calling reporters. And Attorney General Mitchell, the badass who wanted every anti-war protester and anyone suspected of smoking weed locked up for life somewhere. Really horrible fascist human being. And he eventually went to jail because of Watergate and stuff. That went out of his office. Yeah. That attorney general going to jail made my teenage years. The justice actually working the way it should have. And Senator Sam and those hearings that were the best reality show on the history of TV, the Watergate hearings, I had imitations of several of the Watergate committee at one point, too. And I learned about all the different kinds of Southern accents because Senator Sam Irvin was more very, very patrician man. And do you really expect this country lawyer to... And then was Herman Talmadge, another old segregationist who tried to block the civil rights bill years earlier, but became a hero, just like Senator Sam, just looking at people. Do you mean to tell me, Mr. Ehrlichman, that they were were great fun? And uh, to the point where Columbia even put out a Senator Sam Irvin album which went immediately to the cutout bins. Senator Sam at home, the chairman, telling stories about, you know, because he was very old by then and loved to tell stories, you know, weird little stories of swamps and other things. And that was the album. It was, him, it was it was just him telling stories. And he attempted a cover of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Wow. You want Golden Throats, William Shatner stuff. He don't he don't call a candle to Senator Sam. Wow. Over 
troubled Walter. <laughs> Do you have I it? I will lay me down. I mean, I'm sure it was very Southern Baptist for him, but, you know, the, the soul of the whole thing came out his way, and it was actually kind of a beautiful version and stuff. And, Do you have the record? Um, what's that? Do you have the record? Oh, of course. I found it for in, in, in a, in, you know, the, there was a, a chain record store that put their promos over in a corner for a buck a piece. Yeah. And I found the doubt about the dictators that way. The Ramones came out of that little bin, that first album. Oh, they kind of look like the New York Dolls. At least the music's probably pretty good. And, uh, Aerosmith, Toys in the Attic, and hardly anybody knew who they were then. They broke like many months later. And all kinds of cool things came out of that little bin. And one of them, well, it's a little high for me. I'd rather get this for 10 cents in, in trade tapes bin, but I, I better get this. Wow. <laughs> and it vanished almost immediately. But you can probably find it on Discogs for less than 20 bucks. Yeah. Maybe wow. less than 10. <laughs> and yeah, you'd have another impersonation. You'd have all kinds of things to practice on with. Yeah. Him gotta get them. Stuff. So, uh, okay. One of the, one of the impressions I did, it wasn't an impression. I did um, one of my last years at SNL. I did a, uh, an, uh, a hardcore band that has a reunion at a wedding. Oh, is that Ian rubbish or is that a different character? It's a different one. It's like American hardcore. And I do, a, I do a nod to you. In that, in the lyrics, uh, as everything's going down, we're playing at a wedding. I say, do you hear me, Alexander Haig? <laughs> there I you go. Alexander Haig reference, and that's a reference to you guys. Right. Cool. I mean, what I had always hoped for, although they're kind of aging out now, even though they made another Spinal Tap movie, was that crew that yes. did uh, Mighty Wind and Spinal Tap would do a punk movie based uh, on the movie. reunion circus known as the phony lineup of dead Kennedys. Mm -hmm. And that, that, you know, even if you take it partly the real ones, you'd have to do something about me too, but, um, but whatever they want, or just make it completely fictional, but there needs to be a spinal tap movie about reunions often with, keep i mean the germs went out with no darby crash i you know when when ray and they company did, I did that know. i labeled it fraud core and there's a lot more fraud core than just them going on now yeah who else is doing it well the saddest one of all and i respected the guy i mean he had he was a real writer and he had more of a heart and he got lumped in with oi even though he predated was the angelic upstarts and Menzi, Tommy Menforth, who died of COVID not that long ago. But at one point, the band, the Angelic Upstarts, was touring in Spain. And it turned out that not a single original or whatever member of the Angelic Upstarts was in the band. Not wow. one. Which wow. another British band called One Way System has been doing for many years. There's no original members of Napalm Death anymore either, although some of them go back two decades now. But wow. um, but the Angelic Upstarts thing, what really upset me about that one was not a single original Upstart, and who booked the tour? Menzi. Oh man. He sent down a completely fake band, and people knew it was a fake band. They paid the money to him, and he did it that way. 
And what was it like fill in players from over the years or something? Well, there may, I don't know. I mean, there may have been, I mean, there was a bassist there for a long, long time. Even when I saw him in the mid eighties, who's stayed all those years, but I don't think he was original, but he was almost the original. I think he might've been there. And I don't know about the guitar player went by Mond. I think he was out years earlier too, but I could be wrong. But sadly that bass player, um, he and Menzi died within something like a couple of weeks of each other, both of COVID. Oh, it must have been early days of COVID then. No, it was much later. But the vaccines, even if you wanted them, were much harder to get in England. I mean, Boris Johnson was in charge after all. Wow. You know, his own his own species of incompetence compared to Donald Trump. He wasn't pushing like stuff you inject horses with or whatever, but uh, just because Doctor Atlas told him to. God, if they if too bad Boris Karloff isn't still with us, or he could play Doctor Atlas in a horror yeah. movie, yeah, <laughs> as well as Pope Benedict too. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, Pope Benedict. The only thing we saw of him was a severe pope after John Paul II, and oh, yeah. you know, he only got to be pope because he knew where all the bones were buried. Everybody was afraid of him and stuff. So then he's this doctrinaire old pope, but he always, if you have the very and stuff. <laughs> oh no, it's Frankenstein. It's the werewolf. Think of the 1930s movie. It's the pope, <laughs> and there he is. <laughs> totally okay some of these other you did a lot of ethnic impressions i yeah. mean there's billy smith who was a native american comedian mm -hmm. and then there was what uh ferrecito a venezuelan comedian at least you could kind of get away with because you're part venezuelan and who's some of the frondi the mentally challenged one and uh, the dictator's best friends and then a woman named what Regina you did Queen Elizabeth even which yeah. is probably hilarious as well as Ian Rubbish the conservative punk guy who doing the reunion and did you know how conservative John Lydon actually is on some issues at that I was, point I was surprised I mean, although I don't know quite where he stands I'm not I'm not sure what his his actual it, it depends is. on the issue he kind of considered himself a situationist but at the same time Bodies is an anti-abortion song. Yes. And then he said, even in the early heyday of PIL, that he was pro-nuclear power. Uh -huh. I like having my toaster work uh -huh. and uh, things like that. And then, of course, he was, you know, very openly rah-rah Trump in 2020. And I, uh, I couldn't tell if he was really rah-rah Trump or if he was just you know, uh, trying to get a reaction from, from the journalist. Sadly, I, I, I think tell. both. Yeah. I mean, money will do that to people. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he got out of, he got out of over there in the heavy parts of London. He was Irish after all. And then <laughs> lived in Malibu most of his life. And that can do things to you. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess you've done Obama. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah. you know, yeah, he's a hard one, except the way he never looks straight ahead when he's talking and stuff. <laughs> he's giving true. speeches. Yeah. He did Prince and uh, even the uh, partially blind governor by accident, David Patterson in New York. Yeah. Michael Bloomberg. Bloomberg. The reason right. I bring these up is. Would you or Saturday Night Live touch any of that now? 
That's a good question. Um, I, I, my answer is that I don't know, you know, who knows if, uh, it would be able to be done in any sort of, you know, um, tasteful or, or co cohesive way. There's no way for me to know where, what SNL would do. Well, I, I mean, part of the reason I brought it up was when I was showing movies being brought in every once in a while to show a couple movies at an Alamo draft house in Denver. Mm. And um, one of the top ones I wanted to show to co-bill it with my favorite movie ever made, The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, what do you, what better way to close that than with one of the most hilarious comedies I've ever seen and my favorite Peter Sellers movie ever, The Party. Yeah. And in the party, he plays an East Indian guy. Yeah. Complete with the accent. And just he, he uses that to make him a, a uniquely clueless Sellers character who's clueless in different ways than Inspector Clouseau and just slowly starts destroying this Hollywood bigwigs party as the movie yeah, goes on a, almost it's... completely by accident. You've probably seen yeah. it too. Oh, yeah. And uh, so... Yeah. I took a poll of people, including King Khan and whatnot, of East Indian ancestry. Do I show this film now? This film is so hilarious. I'm going to say it. It's really goddamn funny. But what do you think? Everyone came back. I, I, King Khan in particular. Yeah, that's one of my favorite movies from my childhood. I think I've seen it at least 15 times, but you should not show it now. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So then what do you do about these various things and stuff? And um, because even Joan Crawford, I believe, once performed in black, blackface right. in one of her movies. Do you cancel her? Do you cancel the whole movie? Do you cancel John Muir because he did have some horrible racial views that didn't get really highlighted till recently? Where do you draw lines here? And this kind of torments me because yes, I'm I you know I, I I'm a political artist, but I'm also a very satirical artist who still has a nose for really sick humor that even a lot of other political people really don't dig about me. And sometimes I will pull something out just to annoy them and yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. I haven't done the spoken word shows in a while, but that was a major part. And of course there's, there's lots of gallows humor, even in the last album, Tea Party Revenge Porn. And I don't like having to think like I got to censor myself on this stuff. Although once when, on a discussion panel at the conference on world affairs, a really cool thing they used to have before it got corporatized, the university of Colorado and everybody from once a secretary of the general of the UN to Roger Ebert would go every year. Molly Ivins would go every year, but I didn't go till later, sadly. So I never got to meet either of them. Molly in particular is one of my heroes, but, uh, um, yeah, but, but I, I was on, with an African-American guy who I didn't know was connected with Fox News, too. But he uh, he said that, yeah, you were really inspiring to me. That Dead Kennedy's Frankenchrist album's a major thing that really inspired me to become a conservative. 
Wow. You know, oh my God, I failed wow. again. I mean, there's all kinds of studies to counter Tipper Gore and all, you know, and all those goons and everybody. Mitch McConnell first got his name in the paper trying to censor, censor music as well. Yeah. Studies showing that teenagers hardly pay attention to lyrics at all which is a really bummer for me or probably somebody like Chuck D or Ice or T or some of the others who really want to wake people up and stuff yeah. that people mostly aren't listening. They're just going for the energy, yeah. but uh, hopefully some people do. I didn't look at the sparks lyrics right away until John Greenway began pointing out, have you ever really seen what they're talking? Oh my God. <laughs> and stuff. This is so dark, but so funny. And so, yeah. you know, a different way like Frank Zappa did of lampooning all the different kind of social interactions, as well as jocks and the whole upper crusty, that whole scene, the cheerleader, you know, swans and the, the heathers and whatnot, as they call them later. And I didn't feel as threatened by them growing up or jealous because by then I, I had so much stuff that was just lampooning them, laughing at them and, and whatnot. But now it's like, okay, a bit with the guy, the Fox news guy, I referred to a certain scary as hell Supreme Court injustice who never should have been on the court in the first place, but a senator named Biden helped grease the skids to get him on. And of course, we're talking about a guy I that day called Clarence Uncle Thomas. Mm -hmm. And that guy was all over me for using the term Uncle Tom. And that, you know, like what was now called the N-word, you know, we... Uh, what do you do about the Patty Smith song now? But, uh, and there's starting to be action against it too. I don't know what Patty's going to do, but, um, you know, rock and roll N word just doesn't have the same thing to it, but it was the same thing. You can't, not only you can't say the N word, but an African American artist can say it just fine. Well, some people think so anyway. I guess there was a shouting match at the new music seminar on the artist panel one year between Ice-T and Vernon Reed over the use of that word at all. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, so, and I got defensive. What I should have done is just deferred, okay, err on the side of respect. If they don't want that anymore, you know, then you don't do it anymore. So it goes. And luckily, I hadn't quite tracked the vocals for a song called Clean as a Thistle mm -hmm. on the first of the Guantanamo School of Medicine albums, Jellaby, by the more, more recent current band. It was, it was called, it was all about wayward penises of conservative politicians mm -hmm. over and over and over again. So at one point, it was, you know, instead of uncle, it became Clarence Peeping Thomas wants you riding his broomstick. Ah, you know, well, about about uh, what happened with Anita Hill and all the other women that Joe Biden wouldn't allow to testify yeah. before he rushed it through to a vote where sure he could vote no, but he knew it would pass committees. So he was safe with both his own voters and getting that guy in. Yeah. You know, he, he could have let other people testify and gotten rid of Thomas, but he didn't. Yeah. And, you know, he even lied under oath at those hearings. Yeah, he'd recuse himself from every case he ruled on in the Court of Appeals, and he recused himself from none of them. Hmm. My own legal friend, who also goes back to Boulder at the time, told me, yeah, that's an impeachable offense. He's going to get impeached. No, Rick, he's probably not going to get impeached because the people who own both Reagan and Biden and Daddy Bush was president by then, et cetera, 
they own people like Clarence Thomas too, of course. Yeah. So, uh, so that was, that was an example, but, the, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a tightrope and I'm not sure how I'm going to go after it in a song yet. Trigger warnings. Oh, microaggressions. Oh, you can't even do this in a college class anymore because it might upset one person. Mm-hmm. And there's stuff that really, really upset me as a child that still triggers these things, but you can't ban that. I mean, we used to watch Walt Disney every Sunday night where they'd have different animals as the lead characters in different shows. And there was an ocelot, a cat. I love cats. And it was a small cat, too. And oh, oh, oh. And then then it's time for the ocelot cub to be let go back in the wilderness. So they drop the ocelot off and then drive off as fast as they can as a pickup truck. And there's this abandoned little ocelot there. And I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried. And then at the end, the ocelot finally finds its way back to where it was before it was dropped off and notices that a little gas station has been put up and there's a road there now and turns around and goes back. Oh, wow. That wasn't a happy ending to me at no, all. No, so, no. Uh, but, you know, you, you can't, you know, just because that upset me that much doesn't mean you don't let anybody else see it. Yeah. I mean, that was the, one of the leading lines of defense in the obscenity trial over Dead Kennedy's Frankenchrist album because the charge was distributing harmful matter to minors. Right. And right. the harmful matter law had never been tried before. I don't think they ever tried it again once the jury deadlocked in favor of acquittal and the judge denied the prosecutor a new trial. But and I don't think I ever heard of that law ever being used again. But 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 my lawyers um, and he was a criminal defense. He was a Perry Mason type. But, you know, every once in a while he would do stuff for pro bono and he came to me and somebody said, yeah, Phil Schneerson wants to do you don't go looking for a William Kunstler, an activist person who fights the good fight and loses, just get this guy because Great. he's a total skilled pit bull defense attorney. So that was what I did. And he justified it by saying, look, I want every once in a while, I do something like this to give back to my profession. And I'm so angry over Tipper Gore and Ed Meese and what they're trying to do to the constitution. This is my way to fight back. Wow. And so his point in his own media statements was what they're trying to do is dumb down, not just music, but go after books and film and even journalism where nothing is allowed unless its content is so dumbed down that a little kid can understand it. (laughs) And that was the way he put it. And Alan Ginsberg put it to me later. Later. Yeah. If they go after sexually explicit stuff, it's that's the way they try to choke off different parts. We all have in our brain and then choke off other things too. Yeah. As they go along. And of course there's a huge movement against that too, primarily from the extreme right, of course, you know, critical race theory and these angry parents, some of them with guns storming school boards. So every once in a while, some school board or a principal or a librarian or teacher gets one complaint from one parent and they're so scared they pull the book. Yeah. Then sometimes that gets reported to Freedom of Read, to Freedom to Read Foundation, or that group called FIRE. Can't remember what F I R E stands for, but they they mainly do colleges. 
but a lot of it is in high school, National Coalition Against Censorship. I mean, I've been supporting all these people for years for obvious reasons. So I get all these horror stories and Americans United for separation of church and state. Some of it is in there too. They track religious right vigilante stuff as well as preachers for profit corruption and sometimes the scandals they get into as well. And they sue a lot when people try to, I don't think the national coalition against censorship sues directly, but they can find you somebody ACLU and Americans United does. Wow. And, and uh, I love those people. What can I say? Yeah. I mean, it was my fifth birthday when the Supreme Court outlawed forcing kids to pray in public schools. Really? So I got spared from that right yeah. before I went to kindergarten. And I was not brought up churched at all. You know, I, I had a choice later when I finally discovered, oh, my God, people believe some of that stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and slowly, slowly got worked up about it over time. But had I shown up at kindergarten and later and not know what to do and not prayed or something, that's where playground bullies go to town. Oh, yeah. And look out if you're the Jewish kid in the class, oh. let alone now a Muslim or a atheist or buddhist or whatever that's why you don't have forced prayer in school because then bullies go to work yeah thank you i mean one of the main things and i'm not condoning what they did but the shooters at columbine when those videos came out later and we're gonna get you this we're gonna get you that and one of the main ones was it turns out columbine high school was 50 percent evangelical christian okay and they were being bullied for not being evangelical Christians. Oh, this wow. is why even letting the coach have everybody pray on the football field, which the Supreme Court just okayed, and they're going to go further than that, is not okay. Yeah, agreed. You know, what? so where, where do you draw the line? I mean, another, another, but the thing about microaggressions and you can't offend this anymore, you can't make fun of this anymore and stuff like that. I mean, what happens to humor? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, comedy just evolves, and th- that's okay. I mean, th- it's always been that way with comedy, where it just keeps changing anyway. And, you know, the comedy that I do now, uh, ha- not even having anything to do with that, I've just focused on it being about music and drumming. You've been to, you know, you've been to a couple of my yeah. shows. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's just like a personal sort of um, route I wanted to take with comedy. And, you know, it's just, I think it just goes that way. And, you know, on the other hand, you look back at some of the best work of George Carlin when yeah. he is absolutely skewering Bible thumpers and stuff. Oh, yeah. And, his, and, his and that very belief system altogether, yeah. he doesn't come across as bigoted no. doing it. Although the other side will claim it's bigotry now. You know, these, uh, you know, religious freedom means you can't get health insurance for birth control if you work at Hobby Lobby and stuff like that. You know, their idea of religious freedom, of course, is taking away everybody else's. Yes religious freedom and reproductive freedom and everything. It's the, it's designed to make them more free to oppress you. Yes. And of course, now we have a six, three majority on the Supreme court, as well as among them, a five, four majority on the Supreme court, a Supreme court justices 
appointed by presidents who stole elections. Mm-hmm. All of them are ill. That entire right-wing block is illegitimate, except for Clarence Thomas, who barely is, I guess. And they know that about themselves, too. They know they're not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And the, so they're just moving further and further and further in that direction, as we know. But, you know, this you can't do this because it might offend me, even if it doesn't offend anybody else, it kind of enrages me in a way. It, it, it first came to me when there was yet another panel on censorship, and I think it was CMJ, College Music Journal in New York, might have been New Music Seminar, Howie Klein, who was either still head of Sire Records or maybe had gone on to reprise by then, old friend from San Francisco, did 415 Records before that, and the guy who, you know, people in San Francisco thought, oh, he's so uncool. He was like a writer who managed these wimpy bands and then pushes Romeo Void, this, that, and the other. But Howie is the one who signed Ice-T to Sire. And Howie is the one who got through Sire that Ministry's Land of Rape and Honey is not going to sound like the dance music album we put out the last time. This is what they want to do now. And you shouldn't reject this. We should put this thing out. And he was the one who got the Body Count album out. Oh, wow. Yeah. But you're on that. You're on that Body Count album. You're on there. Um, I'm on a much more recent one. one. You're on the Ice one. When, when Cop Killer got taken off, they used a sample of me that was the same as on Ice's Freedom of Speech album, the message from our sponsor that track one. from No More Cocoons, the first spoken word album. Um, yeah. So, and, you know, they just asked me and asked me, I'd just give it to them for free. And I'm like, considering the situation, yeah, just go do it. Just go do it. But uh, oh, that's so cool. I mean, there was brief talk of alternative tentacles bootlegging cop killer, but then finally I get up the ladder to ice and it's like, they will fuck with you. And so I just, okay, this is not going to be worth it. Oh, oh, well, then somebody else did anyway with Soundgarden's cover of it on the other side. Mm. But, um... Yeah, but the another real besides a great album start to finish and lyrics that you know <laughs> now poor Tipper Gore, poor religious right people, or Joe Lieberman or Mitch McConnell that now the scariest side of political hip hop comes with rock. You know, it was almost more of a punk album than a metal album. The yeah. debut in sound it was almost like Steppenwolf in a way, yeah. with Cop Killer being the born to be wild of the '90s. I still, yeah. you know, Rolling Stone one of my top fifty songs of all time. I think Cop Killer was somewhere in the top ten, wow. and I think Rock and Roll McDonald's by Wesley Willis was number three. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, they sent a list you could choose from, and I think I chose one or two songs off of that. I think Born to be Wild was on there, but none of the others. I mean, I don't need to choose from five Britney Spears songs when I can choose from no Britney Spears songs <laughs> and put in Hank 3 and Turbo Negro and the others instead. Needless to say, my advice was not heeded. But uh, <laughs> they, should have printed, they should have printed the list of everybody who responded, but they yeah. didn't. But anyway, where are we back to? Okay, Body Count. 
when it really hit the fan over Cop Killer, the LAPD sat on it for about a year. They had debuted it at the first Lollapalooza. And imagine 20,000 people who booed me earlier, which was a great feeling to be booed by 20,000 people when you're dissing candidate Bill Clinton for what he really is in front of 20,000 people who've invested all their hope in that guy. You know, that that was great fun. That was one of my, my crucifix moments. How did you, what, what were you up so, there? But, as uh, I'll, I'll finish, but I'll finish the first, first the booing, but then that same audience about 40 minutes later, he's debuting body count. And the first song they played no album out for quite a while after that was cop killer. And here comes 20,000 people, you know, some being awfully straight picnickers and stuff. Fuck the police. Fuck the police. That, that, that was quite an awesome moment, but even more awesome in some ways to have been a fly on the wall and a year later when they need to deflect all the reaction because of the Rodney King verdict and everything somewhere else, then we pull out cop killers. So all the wrath goes towards ice and body count and ice cube for black Korea and other things so we can take it off the heat of the pigs. And that they saved it for that. So then there is a Warner Brothers board meeting on what to do about body count and iced tea and that song. And oh, to have been the fly on the wall where Charlton Heston, who was a major stockholder and stuff. Um, maybe this was after Beverly Sills, the opera singer, said that the people, they should drop all artists who criticize the government. But um, Charlton Heston, Moses on the Mount, bury me with my gut and my cold dead hands. Charlton Heston is reading the lyrics to KKK Bitch off the Body Count album to that room of people in his angry Charlton Heston voice and stuff. <laughs> Getting spoken that album word. out in public that's, was, that's was probably good. Word. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess we, we, uh, I mean, but yeah, the other example, going back to CMJ and the censorship panel with Howie and whatnot, this was right after Bill Clinton, that's earlier that same summer or spring, had picked Al Gore to be his vice president, which means suddenly Tipper Gore was going to have a much bigger profile. And that upset a lot of us, including Howie, who, uh, you know, he alone almost showed up at a demonstration against Al Gore in L.A. on account of Tipper Gore back when Gore was running in 88 against Dukakis, calling himself a raging moderate. And and the only major label people who showed down were Howie Klein as his, and his assistant, Steve Tipp, T-I-P-P. And they had their bunny rabbit jackets on and everything with Warner Brothers and stuff, the satin baseball jackets. They were the only ones showed up on that. So I tip my hat to Howie and crew for what he did with his position in many different ways. But then there's this panel. I think Howie might have been moderating it. I don't know. Yeah, he was he was definitely there. He was yeah, he was a moderator. And I had said that I don't want like to be on these panels unless somebody from the right wing or Bible thumpers are represented. Because otherwise, nobody will believe me when I say right. what those people are up to. They have to witness these people. And who did they get but this guy who is still in the news now named Brent Bozell. He's like the third one or the, or the I think his son is the fourth one 
of right-wing extremists. It was his father who was doing violent attacks on abortion clinics, even in the early to mid-70s and stuff. And no guns, but beating up doctors and stuff from what I had heard. Anyway, but then, then I realized when I saw, well, this is a different Brent Bozell. He's Brent Bozell third, And um, so there he is. He gives his spiel. As a Catholic, this offends me. And as a Catholic, this offends me. Hey, wait a minute. Since when should I have to tie a gag around my my mouth and even my nuts and, you know, wash my mouth out for soap just out of fear of offending a fundamentalist, Amy Coney Barrett-Oyd, William Barish Catholic that shouldn't work that way? I said, hey, wait a minute. But what about the rest of us where some areas of the Catholic Church just totally offend me, pedophile priests to start with, and all the third world countries who don't have enough food because you don't want any women to be able to get access to contraception there or even let us know it exists. And to me, that is a war crime, sir. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, it, it goes two ways. But, it, but so later, there's the same Brent Bazell as a Catholic, this offends me, to becoming to, as a feminist, this offends me. As a person of color, this offends me. As a differently abled person, this offends me. Blah, 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 blah. And I mean, there was one person back in Boulder at the University of Colorado who in order to educate people, I think it was in a sociology class or something, about what it was like to be a sex worker. And so she had people in class act out trying to be a sex worker and trying to figure out what to do and stuff. Somebody didn't like it. They reported. And I don't know if it was a right-wing feminist or it was a Bible thumper, or maybe someone who was both. There are people like that, Tipper Gore being but one. And um, But not only did that part get pulled out of the class, not only did the class get pulled the instructor who had been there for many, many years, I don't know if she was tenured or not, was fired. Oh, wow. And that, I think, is going too goddamn far. I, okay, if you need to, in teaching a class, you need to educate people. You can't yeah. just not teach about slavery because it triggers trauma. It is traumatic, and we don't want things like that coming back. I mean, the current governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, is from an old plantation and slave trader family. And not much has changed, apparently, with that guy. Jim Crow 2.0, Greg Palace's new documentary movie called Vigilante, about the voting hitman and stuff. You know, it, it really exposes just how horrifically Jim Crow has gotten in Georgia. It's the only reason Herschel Walker, even though he is also a person of color, is in a runoff where vastly more people probably voted for Raphael Warnock than the last time Hmm. and stuff. It's because of all the things that Governor Kemp has done for the real vote fraud, the real election rigging. I could go on about that all night. But (laughs) uh, okay, so Portlandia is no longer there. Yeah. Sadly. I don't get to improv another character or bring back the other one and maybe the epileptic seizure will finally make it. I also really accosted not just Carrie in one of the other scenes where they're sitting at the outdoor restaurant, but I think Tim Go- Kim Gordon from That's correct. Formerly Sonic Youth was in that. Yeah. And 
she was really uncomfortable around <laughs> me and not just because of the character it seemed but uh, no i think she's just shy huh Oh, yeah. I mean, she's, she's crashed in my house before, but that was a long yeah, time ago. I think she's just very shy, but she's she was into it. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because, uh, you know, even if somebody was visibly offended, I was just going to go for no, more. No, no, Because that is what that character was, and that character, and that part of it was me. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And stuff. Oh, you did so, great. Uh, yeah. So what, what are all the things you're up to now? Well, let's see. Uh, I did um, uh, a show called Los Espookies, which is uh, mostly in Spanish. We shot that this year, season two of that. Um, and well, did you grow up bilingual? Yes. You did. Um, Trilingual even? Um, more bilingual, but uh, I've learned some German. Um, and... Uh, I just did this um, Adams Family TV show where I got to play Uncle Fester. Oh wow! Which was really cool, and um, yeah, just producing and a bunch of stuff, and and getting to do a lot of fun things, and then you know, and still doing stand up, still doing uh, the show that you saw. And um, the last time I saw you wasn't actually the one with all the drum sets and stuff. Where yeah. I Prairie Prince for the first time. Yeah. And got me into some Todd Rundgren shows. That was very rewarding. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, both times in Colorado, weirdly enough, but uh, these things happen. Yeah. And they maybe thinks I maybe some think I live there now. I don't know. But um, the other one was the one down the hill from my house at called a place called the chapel yeah we did the guitar it was you and brad paisley of all people yeah who, of yeah. course plays to tens of thousands outdoor places like the shoreline and gotten that big and stuff so uh yeah. for him in that kind of an environment was something i'm not sure i'd ever see again yeah he's he was great too I, uh we talked about music we got to play some music together it was that was awesome. He's he's yeah. He was that. friendly guy and all in, and seemed yeah. happy to be doing it and stuff. Yeah, he was great. Uh, got to do that one. I did another show called Documentary Now that came out this year. Um, Tell us about Documentary Now. Yeah, it's just a bunch of fake documentaries, and we about uh, we based them on documentaries that already exist. So where there was like Grey Gardens, we did our version of it, uh, me and Bill Cater. <laughs> and uh, we, I, we, we just do that every couple of years or so. We'll, we'll put some uh, episodes out of that. Um, right. And then just, you know, just a bunch of stuff. Uh, but No, I, I think Lily Tomlin is still with us. And as far as I know, the other great icon of Laugh-In, Ruth Buzzy, is as well. They would have made a great Grey Gardens. Oh, yes. They would have been great. <laughs> They would have been so good. Yeah, it would have been excellent. But especially if Ruth was still the character who kept hitting Artie Johnson with her purse on the oh park. Oh Artie Johnson! Everything offended her. Yeah, yeah, it's timely, I guess. But uh, yeah, she Very. was great. Ruth Buzzard, or is is great. Uh, yeah, just getting to do fun stuff all the time, and I, I include getting to do this. Uh, podcast with you as part of a, a fun project like i'm glad that 
you know, we that you and I stay in touch and then we get to see each other once in a while. And Oh, yeah. You've done stand-up down the hill the other direction from my house at the Castro Theater. And I find out after the fact. Yeah. I'll be you up there. Never call. No, I, you yes, never I do. call. <laughs> yes, I do. I always, I always let you know. Uh, but I'll be up there again, I think, in January. I'm doing some more shows. Oh, well, I hope I know what time it is. I'm usually in Colorado during January for most okay. of it. Got to get back see. in time for Eddie Muller's Noir City Film Festival, though. Okay. Can't miss that. Okay. But had to be moved from the Castro Theater, that beautiful Castro Theater, Art Deco, perfectly preserved inside. Beautiful. Well, the owners turned the booking and everything else and management over to... Um, a company called Another Planet, who normally does rock festivals and great big venues, I think including the Fox Theater, which was originally an old theater, much bigger than the Castro in Oakland. And they're basically, their intention, I don't know how far they're going to get away with it, is just to get rid of Art Deco, get rid of the seats, and do layers of platforms like they do if you're going to turn an old movie theater into a heavy metal venue. Oh, wow. In an area where there's no parking. Wow. Of course, yeah. there will be other things there, too. But the guy who runs it, Greg Perloff, as I understand, was Bill Graham's right-hand man from way back in the day. And, of course, the legacy of Bill Graham and then getting absorbed by SFX and Live Nation everything else, you don't mess with them. They do what they want, regardless of what the neighborhood thinks. Oh, wow. And somehow... A nationally registered historic building is under severe attack by Perloff's people. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I know, I know. And there's still comedians. They book somebody in there, even while the work is going on, and occasionally show one movie. And whether they put everybody on folding chairs now or not, I have no idea. Or whether they're going to leave a lot of the seats at the end of the day and have a mosh pit where the organ used to be. Wow. That organ with a real organist would pop up out of the floor in between films and stuff. Oh, you know, a beautiful. very, very important part of the Castro Theater experience. Yeah, yeah. And everything. So I'm hoping somehow some of these plans get curtailed, but I'll be talking to Eddie Muller, who you may know too, you know, the guy who does Noir Alley for Turner Classic Movies and has been okay. doing the Noir City Festivals in several different cities, including... LA and many more for many, many years. And um, so he's the one who's kind of been on top of this and sending out the red alerts and stuff. But uh, unfortunately, it appears that the local supervisor, you know, our city council person from my district, which includes the Castro, doesn't seem to give a shit. Mm -hmm. And our current idiot of a mayor named London Greed, who is so in over her head, another Willie Brown puppet, just like all the others he picked from Feinstein, Pelosi, Harris, Newscum, the rest of them. Um, he, th this one, this London breed woman, um, she's in so far over her head, she just governs by tantrum now. Every once in a while, things get so gnarly in the tenderloin because she's been completely ineffective at getting people housed or anything. There's more and more, and there's more and more drug dealing. She just calls a press conference down there. I'm just tired of all this bullshit. Uh, you know, government by tantrum. 
<laughs> and after her bullshit tirade, has anything changed down there? It is gnarlier than I've ever seen it down there. And it's on the watch of London Greed, whose sole ambition seems to be to throw her elbows around into higher and higher offices. I mean, Mayor Ed Lee dies. He drops dead at Safeway in the middle of the night buying groceries from a heart attack. So as president of the Board of Supervisors, she gets to be acting mayor till they find name a real acting mayor. And they named somebody else on the ground she was too corporate and maybe uh, corrupt and stuff. But um, she immediately went ballistic, publicly saying they took it away from her because she was a black woman. And, you know, just playing that card over and over again. And sure enough, she then gets elected the real mayor. And then... Kamala Harris becomes vice president and it's time for Governor Newsom to put in a new senator and she's jumping up and down, huffing and puffing. That seat should go to a black woman. That seat should go to a black woman. And she sure as hell didn't mean Barbara Lee or Maxine Waters or Karen Bass, who hopefully is about to be mayor of L.A., all of whom longtime veterans of the House of Representatives who actually knew what to do. And would be vastly better than somebody who just steps on all these toes and tries to do it fast enough by shamelessly playing the race card that people don't notice how incompetent she is at the job she already has. And she may get yet another term now, too, because the machine usually gets two and stuff. So um, anyway, I don't know how we got on that track with that creature, but um, oh, yeah. She doesn't give a damn about the Castro Theater either. Oh, yeah. Put these money bags in charge. Yeah. Bill Graham's old guy whose partner apparently is a supermarket tycoon. And, um, yeah, that's money for me. That's money for my friends. I don't care. I never wanted to go there anyway. What do I care about that part of town? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... uh, it's uh, it's not as big a battle as it should be, and there was nothing on the ballot in the election to try and stop it, which kind of surprised me. Maybe the announcement that APE Perloff got it went down after the deadline for turning in petitions for this fall's election. I don't know. Hmm. I'm hoping we haven't heard the end of it, but uh, hmm. we're close to landing Eddie Muller on Renegade Roundtable. So uh, hopefully he will be able to give the gruesome details. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully we will cross paths and not just uh, staring at each other on a Zoomoid thing and whatnot. I look forward to uh, it. I always always love getting to see you and getting to hang out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I know you're well up and, and do the hotel thing, but you ever need to crash, then especially if you're still a vinyl junkie, then come to my house. Oh, Jello, what an invitation. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. That's amazing. Uh, oh, yeah. You would lose it just on the uh, incredibly strange and record covers gone wrong boxes alone. Oh, <laughs> oh man. That sounds amazing. Have you ever seen... um? The uh, research publications, books, incredibly strange music, no. volumes one and two. And this is the same guy, V. Vale, who was running Search and Destroy, the best punk zine ever to this day in the 70s. And then uh, then came the Pranks book, Incredibly Strange Films, Modern Primitives. It kind of launched the tattoo revolution and stuff. And Incredibly Strange Music. And so... Um, 
it's it's both people who really made incredibly strange or strange for the time music, meaning very few people outside of people like me were p- pulling Martin Denny albums out of thrift stores and checking into that and Les Baxter and then getting ideas for punk songs, not from stealing note for note, but just what would happen if you did this and then did this kind of thing. You know how that works. Mm. And uh, the psychedelia of the cocktail circuit in the late 50s into the 60s. Really cool stuff, and especially for a percussionist. If you don't know it, it's time to start digging into that. Wow. But anyway, so, you know, interview with Martin Denny and Les Baxter, they never got, he passed away. But Ema Sumac is in one of them, and Eartha Kitt is in one of them, and Robert Moog is in one of them about, you know, inventing synthesized electronic music interspersed with record collector types. Wow. So volume one starts with the cramps. Great. And then um, then moves to be, it's kind of one who people made it, then another one, Gray, uh, Billy and Miriam from Norton are in that one too. And wow. then I didn't make the cut, seven hour interview and about all these weird records. And so that meant there had to be a volume two. Oh. And then that one starts with me before you get all these other people like Robert Moog and Ema Sumac and uh, Esquivel is in that one and uh, many more. Oh, great. Yeah. So, and they're not that expensive on Evil Bay or anything. Incredibly strange music, volume one and volume two. Open it up to any page and your mind will start to spin and you might get ideas out of left field for your comedy shows. You never know. That's how, that's how good magic accidents work. Yeah. And uh, the search and destroy zines are in a, a compiled in two volumes too. a re reissue of those. And, in book form. Great. Yeah. I mean, the beauty of search and destroy is it wasn't like flip side, let alone maximum rock and roll or big takeover, or whatever it predated that very different from slash magazine in LA, but both run by really high powered people. Beats were involved in, in search and destroy too. Bruce Connor, the filmmaker collage artist was taking pictures. Alan Ginsberg financed the first issues. William Burroughs heavily involved and um, even on the cover of one of them instead of a punk band. But um, you know, you, you can open it up to any page and laugh and or learn things because Vale and the others would ask the punk band or the other band, one or two shop talk questions, then start digging into the weirdest experiences in these people's lives or things they knew that they thought other people should know. The Devo interviews are incredible. Wow about control and subliminals and so many other things. And David Thomas and Pierre Ubu, amazing things. Iggy Pop, amazing interviews. You know, we shouldn't have to find out from an Iggy interview that German missed being America's official language by one vote at the Constitutional Convention. You didn't know that either. I did not. Yeah, that's the kind of thing you want to have in a search and destroy interview or other people's interviews. Yes. And so one of my Walter Mitty Cinderella dreams come true when Dead Kennedys first started was getting interviewed by Search and Destroy and coming trying to come up with the wildest, weirdest theories and stories I could have, including my vision of Jerry Brown that became the who is still governor that became the California Uber Alice song. Then Reagan roars in instead in 1980. And I realized Nixon's silent majority and the George Wallace people and everything else had seized power instead. 
And I'd been away in Bol- from Boulder long enough, I realized that not everybody was looking for a guru to tell them what to do. Uh-huh. They were looking for something else to tell them what to do, I guess. But so that's why the Jerry Brown lyrics were dropped uh-huh. in 1981. And we'd been playing around with the jazz version at practice and at sound check. And then Will Shatter, always the contrarian, because Flipper was on that bill. Why don't you play that version instead? And so it became a live version. And I improv the talk every time. No two were like, including the one in the studio. And it was, we got a bigger problem now, new title, and it's about Reagan instead of Jerry Brown. Oh, I know. And later, when I did that show song again, finally, live with the Melvins, it became Schwarzenegger. Mm -hmm. Steroids for the master race, so you all can have my face, Mm -hmm. and things like that. There's a live version of that version on the second of the two albums I did with the Melvins, which was called Sieg Howdy. Okay. <laughs> Buzz came up with that. He came up with Never Breathe What You Can't See for the first of the two we did too. Cause uh, I was complaining about the air in LA. I was like, oh, never breathe what you can't see. <laughs> Another fountain of wit and stuff with a very sharp tongue when you get yes. to know him. But yes. that's a lot of the fun. And so, uh, okay. On that note, um, we are at this point going to roll. Yes, everybody out there, get your incredibly strange music books, but Fred better get his first before this is actually posted. I well, will do. still 25 bucks a piece. I will. And because um, I don't think research has the money to reprint them at this point. But uh, anyway, more and more food for the mill and stuff. If you do get those books and certain parts would blow your freaking mind, then let me know your how your reaction to this. Okay, is. okay, uh, okay. You know, we've we've had a bit of a visit into how your brain works to keep coming up with these things. I mean, we haven't even co- talked about you doing Seth Meyers' shows band as well. Yeah. I mean, somehow doing all these hats and things and not being as incompetent as I am at trying to wear too many hats. <laughs> so uh, thanks again, awesome. Fred, and au revoir, and au revoir. everybody out there, Don't take any wooden hostages. Woo! Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.